Show. It's a Thursday, February the third year of our Lord 2022. Keeps rolling on. A lot going on in the world. We're glad you decided to take a little time to join us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining Herd Tell wherever you are across the street or around the world. We sure appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try our best to turn down the noise of the news media cycle, get to some good information from good folks, let you know what's going on in the world so we can better discern our times. Great guest on today's program, Dale Cooper, uh, WCHS Radio in West Virginia, West Virginia Radio Corporation. What does West Virginia really think of the national attention they're getting with things like Joe Manchin? He's also a media guy. We're going to talk about how media is changing, how the business model of media affects that. Some media insights with my buddy Dale Cooper. Excited to have him on the program today. Also, have a story out of Little Rock uh, about how a street sign is writing a wrong that's going to be a good little story to end the show on. Also, an economic domino, uh, pun intended, domino pizza chain. We like to cover the economic stories, not just in stats, data, and narratives, but also in little stories to give you an indicator of what's going on. We're going to use Domino's Pizza as an example of that. Also, uh, going to talk a lot about government accountability, which we always talk about on this show because when we don't have that, nothing else works right, and there's not a whole lot working right in our government right now, and it all tracks back to that. Veteran Affairs System, a story out of MilitaryTimes.com. We're going to cover that. Uh, first, yet another example of government accountability. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, y'all remember the PPP program, Paycheck Protection Program, big program, $800 billion. Headline, uh, New York Times, the little of the Paycheck Protection Program's $800 billion protected paychecks. This is my shocked face if you're watching on YouTube or on the Big Talkers Facebook page. Shocked face. We've been talking about this since they did it. Anytime you have do something legislation, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how much it might be needed, there's going to be issues with it because it ain't going to be thoughtful. It ain't going to be targeted. They're not going to think it through. And here we are from the New York Times. Hanging over the $800 billion Paycheck Protection Program, one of the government's most expensive pandemic relief efforts, is a simple question. This is written by Stacey Cowley at the New York Times. Did it work? New research drawing on millions of wages and payroll records suggests a complicated answer. Yes, but at an extraordinarily high cost. One new analysis found that only about a quarter of the money spent by the program paid wages that would have otherwise been lost, partly because the government steadily loosened the rules for how businesses could use the money as the pandemic dragged on. And because many businesses remained healthy enough to survive without the program, Another analysis found the looser rules meant the Paycheck Protection Program ended up subsidizing business owners more than workers. Let's pause here for a minute. Anybody with a functional frontal cortex knew this was going to happen because of the way they wrote it. You have to turn down the noise on these big legislative bills because aspirations and what people think they're going to do isn't what's written in the bills. The bills are written in black and white. That's why we take the time at Ordinary Times and other places to actually post the text of the bill, and you have to read the bill. 
because what's written in black and white is what goes into law. And that's the important part, not what they say they're going to do, what they actually put into the letter of the law. Back to the piece. Jobs and businesses are two separate things, said David Atour, an economics professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who led a 10-member team that studied the program. We tried to figure out where did the money go, and it turns out it didn't primarily go to workers who would have lost jobs. It went to business owners and their shareholders and their creditors. Questions about the success of the program have gained urgency as the Omicron variant of the coronavirus disrupts the country's economic upswing, intensifying calls from hard-hit industries like restaurants for a new round of federal aid. We don't learn a thing, do we, folks? Congress rushed to create the Paycheck Protection Program in the pandemic's early days. Rushed is the correct term. Rushed is the source problem here besides just base-level government incompetence. Trying to prevent struggling small companies from gutting their workforces and adding to staggering unemployment rates, the program offered businesses owners low-interest loans of up to $10 million to cover roughly two months of payroll and a few additional expenses. The loans would be forgiven as long as the money went to permitted costs. Nearly every company in America with 500 or fewer workers qualified law firms, construction companies, and restaurant chains, as well as Uber drivers, freelancers, and the bars, boutiques, grocery stores, and hair salons that are the backbone of many main streets. Earlier studies of the program, which generally focused on the largest small companies, were not flattering, finding it had little effect on preserving jobs. But a research economics at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who drew on extensive wage records by the government, said it had performed better than expected. No. Dumping money without focusing it, without thinking it out, never, ever works. Because if you dump money into the economy without some real guardrails on where it's going to go, the money's going to flow through the hands of who always controls the money in the economy, especially the work sector. It's going to go to the companies. It's going to go to the shareholders because they control it. The opposite of this argument is when we just do what's called helicopter money, like the stimulus payments. You just give everybody in America a check, but that doesn't protect their jobs. So the argument is you protect the jobs, you protect the companies, they would protect the workers. It doesn't work that way if you don't think it through and write it out very specifically. The companies are in their best interest. The people are in their best interest. And never the twain will meet when there's all this money floating around without guardrails on where it's going to go. The lesson of the PPP program is the same lesson we should always learn. Ineffective government, poorly planned out, that just does something because everybody's yelling, do something, or even worse, does something as opposed to make it look like they're doing something, not knowing whether it's actually going to do the thing they said it's going to do or not, always ends up this way. It's going to be way more expensive than it needed to be. It's not going to help who it was meant to help. And you're going to end up later on people just crying more, more, more like a Billy Idol song because all they want is the money. And we never go back and learn the lesson that with more accountability, we could have probably had more help, more help where it was needed and for a lower price tag. But we're acting like drunken sailors with our economy and our economic spending and our government accountability right now. And nobody seems to care enough to actually do anything electorally to rein in our fiscal situation. So we're going to keep doing this over and over and over again. And every crisis, we're going to think we can paycheck our way out of it with money from the government. It's never going to work, folks. And we're not going to learn the lesson. As long as we have no accountability for the government and we don't hold ourselves accountable to hold them accountable. See how that works? Everybody's accountable or nobody is. More hotel right after this.
Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, continuing a little bit of a theme about government accountability and efficient government and government that can just function on a basic level. Uh, let's talk about the VA, Veterans Affairs. Uh, all biases up front. I'm a veteran. I'm a VA patient. That's where I get all my health care through. Uh, so I'm not unbiased here. Uh, I went through multiple years and multiple machinations trying to get all the benefits that I had coming to me. And I'm one of the lucky ones, relatively speaking, mine went through pretty well. I had good reps to help me out. A lot of folks aren't so lucky, especially the Vietnam era veterans. Another story this time in militarytimes.com. Military Times, by the way, is not affiliated with the military, despite the name. I just want to lay that out there. Ashley Merriman uh, wrote this piece. Uh, This piece was brought to my attention by our good friend, Molly McCluskey, who we hope to have back on the show soon. About halfway down the piece, after the background on this individual, it goes, today is 78-year-old Sar Backer uh, is still a proud patriot. This is the subject of the piece. It gave his background. Today, the 78-year-old Sar Backer is a proud patriot, but one with heart issues, diabetes, and stage 3 kidney disease, probably all related to his agent orange exposure since they can't find a cause diagnosis. He's hoping that any day now, he'll hear about his long overdue disability. Benefits from the Department of Veteran Affairs. Eventually, he won't get less than a certain amount a month, although it could be thousands more with the back pay. However, he doesn't get a dime until the VA issues a, quote, final determination. Final determination is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, That's when they make the final determination on your rating, your service-connected disability, and then you get a check. They do back pay you back to where you initially filed, but it can take years and years and years. I know a case um, up at the Durham VA where they backpaid a guy all the way back to 1962. They just did this two years ago. So this stuff is uh, draconian how they do it, but nevertheless, back to the piece. Sarbacker's VA application has been pending for almost three years. If it goes much longer, he'll have fought the VA longer than he fought the Vietnam War. And while the federal government made Herculean efforts to avoid civilians during the COVID hurting and giving aid to civilians during the COVID pandemic, distributing funds and cutting red tape, veterans like Sarbacker must comply with the same bureaucracy that's always been in place, even though COVID has made compliance next to impossible. Sarbacker is one of 560,000 Vietnam-era soldiers, sailor, and Marines exposed to Agent Orange while at sea, but because these Blue Water veterans never set boots on the ground in Vietnam, they weren't eligible for Agent Orange-related benefits in the same way others were, Advocates fought for years until a law was changed granting Blue Water vets across access to those benefits. In January 2020, a flood of Blue Water applications began, but then came COVID. VA offices shut down, so processing applications screeched to a halt. Hundreds of thousands of vets were placed on waiting lists for medical exams while mail went unopened and files went unreviewed. At the same time, the pandemic also impacted the national personnel Record Center, NPRC, do not get me started on those folks. Uh, And the National Archive Office charged with maintaining 56 million files of military records. In the before times, the VA would request documents from the NPRC, while another 20,000 requests came in each week from the public, even though older veterans' documents only exist on paper stored in warehouses like the one in the finale of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. NPRC filed most requests within a week. But COVID, with on-site outbreaks, had forced NPRC to operate with a skeleton staff since March of 2020. 
By fall of 2020, the MPRC had 100,000 VA requests, and its public backlog skyrocketed to 381,000 backlog requests. The MPRC caught up with VA's request by April of 2021, but the MPRC's public backlog has now reached over half a million. On January 24, 2022, 113 members of Congress pleaded with the archives to fully reopen the MPRC. It is now taking up to 18 months for veterans to receive weighted for military records. The veterans key to medical care, disability benefits, federal retirement benefits, state tax deductions, home loans, and more. Uh, pausing here, the reason you need that is because unless you have all that on your information and you can print it out, what they call your awards letter and eligibility letters, you can't get any of that. You have to have that first. Again, and you don't get that until the final determination, which can take years. Back to the piece, the Blue Water Veterans VA's overtax system, archive, and the VA COVID closures and slowdowns, each compounded problems over the other, and veterans like Sarbacker are caught in the center of this Venn diagram of bureaucracy. Archive has estimated its backlog will not be resolved until the end of fiscal year 2022. That would be October of 2022. That's an unacceptable long amount of time for the Vietnam era veterans who are all uh, getting up there and becoming quite elderly in age. On November 2021, the VA announced its printer doesn't have enough paper to mail decision letters on a timely basis. Compare that to COVID-related aid for civilians, the federal government's PPP program. Remember, we just talked about that. Uh, authorized $793 billion in loans, uh, $316 billion more uh, for another program, almost 162 million households received stimulus payment. 161 million payments were distributed with 90 million cent in one week with just self-attestation. Civilians can get rent assistance, rent assistance, loan forbearance. Hairs don't have to prove they own their homes before getting money for disaster-related repairs. The wheels of government can turn quickly. After all, it's just a question of priorities. Why aren't veterans a priority? Well, we know the answer. Veterans are handy when you need a buzzword or you need to try to get some funding for something or you want to kick off a football game with a big flag, but we're not so handy when we need actually cared for because you might have to make the government more efficient, more lean, and more effective to actually take care of veterans. But nobody seems to be interested in that because if they were, they would have fixed the VA by now. Actions, not words. Quit telling us how much you care about veterans unless you're going to do something about the VA. It's not all the VA's fault. It's a massive bureaucracy. It's the biggest integrated healthcare system in America. Do you realize it takes the biggest integrated healthcare system in America to take care of just 9 million vets? That's only half of the vets in the country that are in the VA system. That's how ineffective government is. We deserve better. Our veterans definitely deserve better. Don't go protesting football players and stuff if I don't see you outside of a VA complaining about how they're actually treating veterans and actually disrespecting veterans and actually killing veterans. More Hertel after this. Ah, uh, Hertel, I'm going to have so much fun with this for a lot of reasons I'm not going to bore you with because this is kind of like going home for me. Dale Cooper, uh, old school, old timey radio guy back in West Virginia. Uh, he's been the operations manager at WCHS for a long time. West Virginia Radio Corporation manager. 
Great guy. Been a Twitter buddy for a while. One of the reasons I got in this business. I get to talk to my Twitter buddies. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you doing this morning? I appreciate the time. All right. You know the rules of this show. Uh, If you're West Virginia related, you get bumped to the front of the line. But culture and politics wise, uh, we have a national and international audience. West Virginia been all over the news for the last year. Uh, they've read my writings on things like Joe Manchin and the caterwauling out of Washington about our great state. But what is your opinion? What is your perspective there, the perspective of West Virginians? Because once again, we have the national media looking at West Virginia, and sometimes that doesn't match up to how West Virginia sees itself looking back out. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things. And I lived out of the state for a long period of time um, from the uh, mid 90s until uh, about 2010 when I finally came back and um, living out of the state, as I'm sure that you found, there's there's a lot of um, um, a lot of stereotypes that we assume living here that people have of us, which isn't necessarily true. I, I think that a lot of times we think that people think about us when they don't. I don't think that the passive um, thought of West Virginia is anything necessarily negative. It's when things come into the to the spotlight, and if it has a negative connotation, that um, you see that that happens from time to time. When it when it comes from the media standpoint, when I as an example, and this isn't have, doesn't have anything to do with the national political level with like Mansion and so forth, but with uh, Justice's uh, delayed State of the Union address or State of the State address he gave the other night, he had the thing with the baby dog that he did that got a lot of traction. And of course, that's the thing that gets West Virginia into the national media. You know, it's nothing else that goes on. It's this stupid thing with the governor that happens. Whatever you think of the governor, it was a stunt thing to do. And it, it was a point from him to do a stunt. I don't really care about that one way or the other, but buddies that I have that I hardly ever talk to, you know, um, uh, group texts that I have, buddies that I talk sports with and stuff like that, but not all the time, a couple times a year or something like that, that I, that I uh, were, was friends with out of state. I had people get a hold of me that day that I hadn't talked to in months. It was like, what's up with the dog? What's up with your governor? It's like, I haven't talked to these guys in forever. And suddenly it's this that, that triggers them to contact me. And I thought that that was probably a pretty good, um, a pretty good idea of how things go as far as media um, as West Virginia is considered outside of the state and how we see ourselves. Because I think we have a really good media inside the state of West Virginia. Our politicians inside the state of West Virginia, unfortunately, treat the media like the national media. Um, they want that same war in West Virginia that's at the national front, although there's probably not as much difference between your average West Virginians on the left and right as there are, you know, on the national level from the, uh, left to right. Um, as far as like with, uh, with Joe goes and uh, Senator Manchin, I've interviewed him I don't know, half a dozen times or something like that. And um, Joe is um, possibly the best politician that I've ever met. Doesn't mean that I necessarily agree or like him or anything else. He's just really good at being a politician. He's positioned himself where he is right now. But I don't know why. I never. I always thought I sort of knew Joe a little bit. And I really don't feel like over the last couple of years, or at least the last year or so, I feel like I've lost a little bit of that resolution on exactly where he is. And the national media just turns it into, you know, poor ignorant West Virginia and this senator that's there who's Republican light or whatever it is. And it really misses the nuance of the situation that we have that goes on here in the Mountain State, I think, um, to a lot of degree. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I want to talk to you, because you are a media guy, but you do more local and state level media. We, we've had the stats on, I've had journal, this is true in journalism too, not just meet print media and radio media. The nationalization of news has really changed how people perceive everything. We don't have the local media we used to have. We don't have the community media we used to have. I think this is a great loss for a lot of us. 
And I do, I think we're just now realizing it in the way everything gets nationalized. And that's a perfect example where people are just getting kind of the caricatured stories, not that we're not used to that as West Virginians, but you miss the real stories like, hey, here's a state that looks like it's ruby red on all those election maps, but is really, really nuanced. And there's a lot of cross ideological lines on things like environmental concerns and other things that don't fall under strict lines. You miss the actual stories, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, um, you know, calling West Virginia a ruby red state is is true, and there's no question. However, um, in the 2016 presidential prom, um, uh, the primaries, Bernie Sanders was actually very popular here, um, um, and part of that was cause of dislike for for Hillary Clinton, of course. But there is a, a movement of that sort of a workers' movement that's here that you see usually among younger uh, folks of of, uh, of working age that, that kind of see things, but. An example I was thinking about after we kind of had a, a top level discussion about this is I was thinking about how cable news has changed so much about what we see. And anytime that you take like a 24 hour news cycle and you try to cram all the news in that, that's going to be a problem. But it's even worse than that when you think about it from the dynamic of local national perspectives. If I do a local show that's 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 if I do a three hour local show at some point and I want to put in a variety of things, not just news, but if I want to put in. Um, human interest stories, sports, and different things like that. The the show that I actually do during uh, the statewide show that I do during the afternoons hotline kind of does that. It's not that hard to do because all the stories that I'm talking about, we can tell, we call it from a mountain state perspective. So we try to take everything and tell it from a West Virginia perspective to try to take those larger, uh, those uh, less regional stories, the more national stories and kind of marry it down into the local level. The problem that you get with like cable news is you either have you have to keep on recycling the stuff that matters on the national level. You can't do a human interest story about the charity that's down the street because the charity that's down the street from wherever your national headquarters is isn't the charity that's down the street from whoever's watching it on the other side of the country. There's not as although it's a human interest, there's not as much human interest from a from a listener or from a, a viewer who you want to, to watch and to give you ratings and stuff for something that's not attached to them. So what do you get that's attached? It's the national level politics. It's not the local level stuff. So all of the, the, the 24 hour cable news services, they just pile in all the national level stuff. There's nothing local level that's on there. We've even stopped doing the human interest stuff. I remember when CNN first became a thing, most of it was not punditry. It was somebody anchoring news stories, going to different locations, talking about the stories. They would go on the locations, they would present the facts, then they would move on to the other story. Now it's all national level stuff, usually political. I mean, they, they, they come out of Washington. I mean, why does it even have to, everything have to be out of Washington? But they come out of Washington, everything has to be a national level story. And um, we lose all of that local resolution. And then what do we do at the local level? We mirror it. You know, we lose a lot of the local and the, low, uh, the human interest and the local level stuff, the local sports coaches and anything along those lines, because we're all into the, the national political scene and we're painting everything in that same ideology. And I think we just really lose the local resolution on that, even blurring between conservative and liberal. I think that that is much less pronounced at the local level than it is at the national. And the reason for that is, and we've talked about this before, talking to Dale Cooper, our buddy from uh, West Virginia Radio Corporation, WCHS, every day you can catch him doing various things. When you're in a community and you have to sit in a school board meeting or you have to sit in a county commission meeting or you have to politic amongst the friends in your community, you're going to act one way. But when it's just somebody on TV in Washington or New York and you're throwing rocks at the TV or you're just sending a Facebook post, you get to be more vitriolic. You don't have to have those standards on you. And people kind of tend to lose their humanity and their othering a little bit. Problem is, you do that long enough, it starts seeping back into your real life, too, doesn't it? 
And I think that's exactly what we're seeing happen. I think we're seeing it happen everywhere. I think we're seeing it happen from, um, and maybe this is just the old man get off my lawn things, but uh, just civil society driving has seemed to degrade in the last five or seven years. You know, uh, um, uh, people seem to be more out for themselves and those types of things. Uh, Normal interactions in grocery stores and stuff. I mean, of course, we've seen this with the mask, anti-mask stuff, but it's gotten worse on other things too. Just people being mad at other people for either having different opinions, different life experiences, and nobody understanding that my life experience and your life experience are two different things that could lead us to having two different opinions that from our perspectives are completely legitimate. Um, it doesn't mean that you or I are necessarily wrong. It means there could be different ways to get to the same point. None of that is anything that's ever talked about at all anymore. It's all about uh, painting into the to your side of the culture. And in and, and, and West Virginia, unfortunately, we're doing that so much at our at our political level there and and right now the, the state is 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 very heavily on the red side of things as far as the letters beside folks' names that have been elected. But if you look historically at the folks that are getting elected, generally it's the same families. Maybe they've changed political identification over the last couple decades, but we're electing the same people that are doing the same things. And there and for some reason or another, and this is happening in all states, it's not just West Virginia, at the state level, they're determined to turn it into a national political uh, circus. One article gets published in a newspaper that's somewhat critical, fairly heavy on facts. I mean, something there that you should refute fact-based, but instead it's just maligning the media, all of the media. I mean, there's there's not only in, there's in other states, but it's even been taken up in places in West Virginia. Should the the media be um, limited in some aspects. And there's no reason to be at war against the West Virginia media. It's just accountability. If you don't want to answer the questions, you don't have to necessarily answer the questions, but to immediately take somebody that's trying to hold you accountable, even from a point of, of they don't know, here's a question that I surfaced. So here's the question that I would like to answer you. It's not an aha question. It's just a question. Well, we're not answering that question because it's from the liberal media or what does the media know about this? That is completely voiding any chance that you have at holding people responsible for their actions in the public. If you're able to just to take one of the oversights of that and saying, that's just uh, way too political, we're not going to deal with that. What are we left with as far as oversight goes? Yeah, talking to Dale Cooper, our buddy in West Virginia on Herd Tell. When we come back, we're going to delve more into that. He's an inside media guy. We don't like to just talk about the nebulous media. We're going to talk about the actual business model and how that affects things. Uh, talk a little bit more about that West Virginia media. They've always punched above their weight. Why is that? We'll get into all that with Dale Cooper right after this. Right, heard tell. We're talking to our friend Dale Cooper, radio guy, WCHS, West Virginia Radio Corporation, which does great work. Um, we'll talk about the West Virginia media in a second, but let's let's back up to some because you're a radio guy. We've talked about how much media changes, but the business model is what really drives media. Something you've talked about, and we've talked about this privately, but we know Rush Limbaugh died here recently. People don't realize um, they know his talent, whether you believed his ideology or not. Very talented man. His business savvy, the model he predicted of monetizing commentary, 
it's not just radio. A lot of what you were talking about with cable news, the cable news personality, all of that sort of stuff, that business model and why it's so nationalized, a lot of that goes back to how Rush Limbaugh did his business and the way people came up under that business model and modeled that. And now that's kind of where we got to where we are. And a lot of people, I don't think, realize that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The, the amount of impact that he had on uh, political commentary space, you don't have to call it conservative or anything else, just political commentary from a, a generalist, a non-expert, you know, not somebody with a bunch of letters after his name or something like that. I mean, that's kind of where the talk radio aspect came in. But then through the EIB network and Premier and what Rush was able to do, exactly like what you said, with with finding the different elements of what he did. I mean, he, he was into periodicals for a while. People forget he had a late night show. Uh, Rush had a late night show that was on the same time as, uh, you know, uh, Carson and Letterman and stuff back in the time. I used to watch it. It was hilarious. Uh, I mean, uh, when he was creating out content in his in the perspective that he made, basically, the perspective that he created, I mean, it was engaging and good radio. If you didn't agree with his uh, political philosophy, that's one thing. But as a guy that likes radio, I can look at the mechanics of somebody that does radio right, that does the ancillary promotions right, that does the uh, the uh, the uh, program that goes along with it. And I can respect all of that in all of the different areas that he was able to exploit from uh, from print media where he had eventually he got into the more of the digital things and, and stuff like that. It was revolutionary for what we did in our business. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And what we have now is another revolution happening where technology, you know, it used to be, we've joked about it. You know, we used to pretend like we'd be on the radio when we were kids. You had to go find somebody that had tape decks and stuff. But now everybody can do this because if you have a smartphone, you are the media. You can make your own TikTok. You can make your own. I do this. I'm doing this from my home. I have a YouTube channel and a podcast and it's on radio now. This technological revolution with podcasting and what would we call it? Self-media maybe is a good term for it. This is really changing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess. um, Yeah, bespoken media, self-media. Yeah, I I don't know exactly. There's going to be some term for it probably um, in the future. But yeah, everybody can be part of the media in some way, shape or form. How does that change? Um, Because I know we our tagline on this show is always turning down the noise. Everybody can talk now. When you're, you're a media manager, you do this for a living. How does that change the dynamic? Because it used to be you were just basically at the top end of the funnel trying to get it to an audience. Now the audience, it's almost inverted now where the audience can pull from anywhere they want. How do you get an audience's attention? This is more of a revolution. This is like a complete flip of the paradigm, isn't it? Yeah, and frankly, that's kind of where we're we're fighting through right now. I'm uh, I'm taking on some programming things that I'm trying to work through on how to kind of find a way to take traditional radio because although it's a different, it's a paradigm shift. I also believe that uh, the people that are listening to content now that are consuming content now, whether it be on uh, Twitch or YouTube or, or uh, podcasts, I really think that those people are either direct or adjacent to being talk radio fans. I think that we're really close to where we could get some of those folks over right now. I think there's too much of a difference between people that think of talk radio as frankly as being what rush was and then podcasting or, or um, uh, independent fair being more like what podcast or maybe NPR or something like that is. And I think I don't think there's much of as much of a distinction between that. And then when it comes to what individuals are doing, I mean, it's amazing that you get people who start their sub stacks. Um, they have their own newsletters. They have their 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 pages. They don't have any necessarily um, uh, education in the field or something like that. They're just they, they're either self-taught 
And there's a lot of these people. Sure, there's a lot of junk. You can find a lot of junk, but there's a lot of people that do such exceptional work. And I think as professional broadcasters, we have to find a way to either invite them into the fold or adopt some of the styles it is that they're doing in order to stay relevant because people are going to be consuming more of that type of content than what we consider to be the professionally produced content. I don't know that, uh, that uh, there's going to be much of a market for that in five years. No, because what it is, is I think people want real. And when things went nationalized, there's a lot of, you know, everybody copycats, everybody, we all, we all do that. But that national, it's just it gets to be so much sameness that people just want something different. Uh, let, let's loop back to where we started because I always want to talk West Virginia with folks. But I've said it for years, and you mentioned it without having to be prompted. West Virginia has always had media that punches above its weight. They've had excellent media. Um, the Charleston Gazette had a Pulitzer in recent memory. Um, WCHS, the news station, Metro News has always been good. What is it about West Virginia media? Why they're so good? Is it out of necessity? Because it's kind of all we got because <laughs> it, it went from one dominant party to the other dominant party. Uh, there's been all kinds of government accountability issues. Is it just people wanting to know what's going on? Why is the media in West Virginia so good when by all accounts, it probably doesn't have any right to be as good as it is? I'll take a swing of that just from my perspective here in, in Charleston and uh, being the program director for WCHS. Um, as far as swinging out of the out of your uh, your market, uh, CHS has twenty uh, some Marconi's, I think, uh, a bunch of Murrows um, on the national level, not just yeah. coverage. We've beaten out much larger stations. I think our flood coverage in twenty sixteen beat out the Muhammad Ali and the Pulse nightclub shooting um, for stories of the year on a national level. Um, and that's not so much to brag as it is. I don't I think the media is very good. And, and certainly the people that I work with here in our newsroom, I would put up against anybody in the country. But but I think that in West Virginia, with it being such a small state, relatively speaking, and with the uh, impact points being fairly condensed, mostly to Charleston, I think the reason that you get media that does a pretty good job here is there's less uh, hills that you have to defend or there's less places that you have to go to for the story. If you can stack pretty well in Charleston, you know, most of our national or statewide news, although uh, uh, Metro News is the statewide network that is officially ran out of Morgantown, all of our statewide news is really generated here in Charleston and the Charleston reporters that uh, that do that are the ones that, that put that together. And I think that that's because, you know, obviously being focused here in Charleston and that's where all the stories come from. So if you're canny and you have good reporters that you can staff, you can actually focus in on just a, a relatively limited regional area and uh, and develop a really good news network. And I think uh, and, and, and surface some really good stories. And I think that's one of the reasons um, and we just attract, I think we attract a lot of people that, that want to get a little bit uh, into the muck a little bit because covering West Virginia um, as a journalist and getting into all the things that has to do with energy and poverty and drug addiction and stuff like that, it's kind of a dirty business. I don't mean unethical. I just mean it's not the most comfortable stories. And I think we have some people that, uh, that are willing to tackle those stories. And it's very interesting that people for all the stereotypes and all the hillbilly jokes, and we've heard them all. Almost all the relative issues uh, on a national and even international level, all those issues are right there in West Virginia. We've got poverty. We're ground zero for the epi opioid epidemic. You want to talk energy and environment? We're ground zero for all that. Government programming, things like the Build Back Better, infrastructure, you name the story, West Virginia has a little bit of a microcosm to it. 
in a relatable way. Um, just to put a bow on this before we had to let Dale Cooper go back to doing his day job. The thing about West Virginia that always uh, grabs me, whether I'm telling a story or explaining to somebody else, is the people. You talked about the media. One of the reasons they have such great stories, though, the people of West Virginia, you've left, you've come back. I've been back and forth. I'm trying to get back here, hopefully in the next few years again, full time. My family's all there. What is it about the people of West Virginia that makes it so compelling in all these stories? I really think that that is um, at its core. I think West Virginia, whether you're you're looking in, in the communities that have been ravaged by drugs, uh, industry leaving, whatever it might be. You're looking at uh, the, the urban communities where there's problems with, with crime or drugs, um, and whether that be uh, majority white or minority black or whatever it is. I think the one thing that we get in West Virginia, because we're kind of a small state, everybody within communities knows each other um, to a large degree. I think what makes the stories here so compelling is because it's such a, at a, such a human level. Um, within a relatively small um, uh, slice of the state, you see the spectrum of life you can see from from uh, you know the wealth living in opulence all the way to um, relatively rural areas I mean I live in Charleston obviously my mom lives in a little town called Beaumont that's near Clendenin it's a 45 minute drive she doesn't have cell, cell phone service the only internet service she has is satellite service I mean it's like I literally lived in uh, South America for a while at the Amazon basin I had better internet service uh, there and sell service there than my mom does 40 minutes from a capital city in the United States. So I think in West Virginia, because you have that range within such a small area, I think that's the reason the stories become so compelling because it doesn't take very far to step from some sort of a, of a story about uh, uh, industry and wealth. And then you take two steps over and you're across the creek and suddenly you're talking about poverty and drug addiction. And it's all within a football throw of each other. I mean, it's, that makes it pretty compelling, I think, on its own. Yeah, and we could do uh, multiple stories on uh, Frontier, but we won't because I'll start getting upset because they're a mess. Uh, Dale Cooper, thank you so much for the time today. Let folks know where you're at, what you're doing, how they can follow you on social media because you're a great follow. And also when they have a West Virginia story about Joe Manchin or Baby Dog or anything else where they can get good information directly from the source from that great West Virginia media we've been bragging about. Yeah, that's right. So uh, locally, hyperlocal in Charleston, you can go to wchsnetwork.com. That's where all of our local uh, stories are published. On Facebook, you can do the same search, and we usually uh, mirror all the stories over there. Uh, statewide for the uh, for the network, it's wvmetronews.com. It's actually the most visited uh, website in the state of West Virginia that originates in the state of West Virginia. I forget what the numbers are off the top of my head, but it is uh, very impressive. Uh, they do Sports, uh, live sports scores on there. So on Friday night lights, if you're looking for sports, you can find it there. Live election updates during elections and stuff. So that's where we really like to pin our um, our accuracy from. One line I can found, it's at on air coop on Twitter. That's at on air coop. Um, and uh, you can find the link to the rest of my stuff from there. I usually use the same handle everywhere else that uh, that has to do with radio. And then if you have any uh, stories or anything that you want to send, you're more than welcome to do that. It's uh, dell.cooper at wvradio.com. Dell.cooper at wvradio.com. See how he put his radio voice on there right at the end. That was good stuff. That was high quality. Except uh, I'm losing it. <laughs> I don't know why. I've been losing my voice a lot the last couple of months. Yeah, Dale Cooper, I appreciate your time, my friend. I'm being a homer, but look, they don't give Marconi's away. Uh, West Virginia media really is that good. Go to the source. I'm being a homer about it, but they really, really are great stuff. Dale Cooper, thank you so much, sir. We'll definitely have you back when we got some more West Virginia stuff we need to dig into, my friend. Andrew, I appreciate it. Take care, man. Thank you, sir.
Welcome back to Hertel. You know, we talk about turning down the noise. That means sometimes you cover topics from an unexpected angle. So when we talk about economics, we don't just chase the headlines of economics. We also chase stories that can be indicators of things that are going on inside of the economy, besides just data and stats, numbers, and the trending headlines and narratives, which may or may not be an accurate reflection. So in the spirit of that, here's an economic story you might want to put in to the back of your mind and just process on a while. Uh, quoting from the Washington Post here, Domino's is giving a $3 tip to pizza delivery drivers. That is its own customers faced with a shortage of workers. The chain this week began offering to pay its patrons to order carryout instead of delivery. A new ad promoting the campaign shows a woman picking up a pizza for her family, and she finishes the errand. She morphs into a Domino's driver, complete with a familiar visor-topped uniform and a card decked with the company's signature hood signage of the Domino. You're no longer just a customer. You're a delivery driver, a narrator in tones, and we believe every great driver deserves a tip. The deal lets customers place online orders, claim a $3 credit towards a future online order. The novel move comes as the world's largest pizza chain, like so many other businesses across the United States, struggles to meet staffing needs. Finding delivery drivers in particular has become a challenge for Domino's CEO Richard Allison last year, partly blamed the lack of drivers for the company's first decline in same-store sales in over a decade, which led to a decline in the company's share price in an October earnings call. Allison said Domino's would focus on growing its carryout business, according to reports, in an effort to lessen its dependency on delivery. The change delivery times abruptly and surprisingly spiked 30% over the summer, according to James Rutherford, an analysis for Stephens, Inc. In a note to clients ahead of the release of Domino's third quarter results, Rutherford identified the problem as being caused by a driver shortage since he noted that carryout times didn't increase, Bloomberg reported. Domino's, which relies on its own drivers rather than such third-party delivery services such as DoorDash or Grubhub, has previously used unusual marketing campaigns to highlight the delivery fees that such services charge. In November, it gave some of its own delivery customer gift certificates to be redeemed directly at independent restaurants nearby in an effort to call attention to the hit that mom-and-pop restaurants had taken due to delivery fees, which eat into their profits. And last year, Domino's gave away menu items with some of its delivery orders, contrasting the surprise freeze, that's F-R-E-E-S, a play on word, with supply with the surprise fees associated with delivery services. The Domino's driver's dearth isn't an anomaly. Businesses across the country are struggling to meet their labor needs amid what analysis are calling the Great Resignation, a phenomenon that saw 8% of the country's workforce quit their jobs between August and October of last year. Workers have more opportunities and are responding by attempting to lessen their dependence on some workers. Many companies, as Domino's is with its drivers, are offering better pay and other essential incentives to attract and keep staff. That's from the Washington Post. Domino's changing their entire business model. This is interesting because Little Caesars, which never had delivery, recently started opening up to delivery, going the other direction. It'll be interesting to watch how those two things go. Um little bit of an economic indicator. Once again, we don't have horrible economic news, but the labor shortage is there, but unemployment's low. This is things we've been talking to friends like our buddy Jericho Hill that comes on the show, other economists that we're going to have on the show because it doesn't make sense, but that's because it's specific to the times we live in. 
These don't fit into the normal economic headlines and narratives we usually use. So we need to kind of glean our own information here. Some of this is what they're calling the great resignation. People that normally work part-time jobs are stepping away from them for whatever reason. Part of it is people have more information after a pandemic and they want better. So they're holding out a lot of moving parts here, a lot of things to be concerned on. Uh, one other little tidbit, the, uh, the jobs news that is coming out for this past quarter continues to show the same low unemployment, but a whole lot of people not working. A lot of that's COVID related. A lot of it's regulatory related. A lot of it's reasons that we may have to wait a little while to find out about. We'll continue to cover it. We'll continue to turn down the noise on it and talk about it, not caterwaul about it here on Hurtell. We'll do more to Hurtell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. You know, we always try to end on a happier or more uplifting note. Certainly got one of those today. This story comes from Good Morning America, but this is being read from the Arkansas Times, arktimes.com, uh, reading Good Morning America, kicked off Black History Month on the front porch of Annie Abrams, Little Rock home, the ABC morning show, surprised Abrams with a yard full of admirers, a street sign with her name on it, presented by Little Rock City Manager Bruce Moore and a donation from Wells Fargo to the Annie Abrams Living Legacy Award Scholarship at Wachita Baptist University. Abrams is a beloved educator and Little Rock icon known for opening doors for black children when she helped integrate Little Rock Central High School. Abrams was also instrumental in renaming streets in Little Rock for black leaders Daisy Bates, Charles Busey, and Martin Luther King Jr. A mother of four, the first black president of the Central High PTA and a lifelong community activist, Abrams said service is, quote, the rent you pay to stay on God's earth. Honey, listen, you can't beat giving to God's children, she told ABC News correspondent Janai Norman th Tuesday morning. I won't, wasn't a millionaire, but I gave away a lot of love. The street sign with Abrams' name on it brought to mind a minor flap in 2011 when a push to name a street after Abrams turned messy, updating maps and GPS systems to reflect the name changes a big chore opponents raised and complained, and Abrams asked that the request to name the street in her honor be withdrawn rather than fuss about it. But she has it now. So good for her. Of course, Little Rock Central High School, those iconic images, those pictures of people holding those signs with those horrible things written on it, yelling at a small black child who just wanted to go to school, and 101st Airborne having to escort her in and out of the building. There's people in those photos holding those signs that are still alive. We hope they've changed their ways. History is never as far away as we think it is. And human nature is undefeated. We always have to work hard to overcome the worst angels of our nature to get what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. That'll do it for her tell today. However, you're watching on YouTube or the Big Talkers Facebook page or listening any of the podcasting platforms page. We sure appreciate you listening and joining us. However you're doing that, whatever platform you are, do us a favor. There's usually a comment and a ratings option on those platforms. If you could give us a good rating, if you could leave a comment, we'd sure appreciate it. We'll try to reply to all the comments we see. Uh, that's a small thing that you can do. It only costs you a click, but it's a big deal to us. We sure appreciate it. Really want to do us a solid? All those platforms also have a share button. You can put us on your social media, let people know what we're doing, how we're doing it. 
and then it's worth their time, we'd sure appreciate it. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep watching and listening and interacting. You want to get a hold of the show, herdtellshow at gmail.com. Send us an email, questions, epistles, comments, whatever you got. Love to hear from you, get back to you. A couple of people have reached out about things. We put them on the show. We even cover topics on the show that people have asked about. Also on the Twitter at Herd Tell Show. Uh, you can get a hold of us that way. Follow us that way. You'll also get updates about what's going on with the show. My Twitter handle, Four for the Fire, and our guest Twitter handles are always on the lower third graphics during the show. You can find their information there. Make sure you follow them, support them, and keep them in your information rotation. So until we talk again tomorrow, you and yours be well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Oh,